we're going to look at a very incredible man. His name is William Tyndale. And if you were to walk up to my study in Dallas, Texas, and go up the stairs and you come into my, into my study, I have a massive portrait of Jonathan Edwards. That's a replica from what hangs in Princeton. But just to the right of Jonathan Edwards is the portrait of William Tyndale. And it's a replica of what hangs in the London Portrait Gallery. And it is on canvas, and I sold two sets of golf clubs to be able to frame it. (laughs) So that was the ultimate living sacrifice for me. (laughs) And every time I walk to my desk and sit down to study the Word of God and to prepare messages, um, I see William Tyndale. And it's painted like a Dutch master's portrait where it's all dark on the, on the perimeters, and there's just his face and his body, and there's light shining on his face, but there's no window open, there's no sun, there's no lamp, and it's intended to show after darkness light and the spontaneous shedding of light that came in the Reformation that just appeared out of nowhere, and the sovereign uh, illumination of God. And William Tyndale is holding a Bible, one of the Bibles that he smuggled into England and Scotland. It had to be small to fit in the cotton bales. And all he is doing, he's standing there and he's holding his Bible, and he's just pointing at the Bible, uh, pointing away from himself and pointing to the infallible Word of God. So I love that portrait, and it is a reminder to me that God will honor the man who honors His Word, and God will bless the people who absorb themselves with the Word of God. And I know that that is true of you and that that is true of this church, and so I know I'm with uh, friends and kindred spirits, and we love William Tyndale because he loved the Bible and because he loved the God of the Bible. So, in this session, I want to talk to you about William Tyndale, who was a prodigious figure. I was in uh, Wittenberg, Germany in 2017 for a conference celebrating the 500-year anniversary of nailing Luther's nailing the 95 Theses to the front door of the castle church. And I, after I preached, I was in a panel discussion uh, with all the speakers that were on the platform, and we were asked this question, who is your favorite reformer? Well, we're in Wittenberg, Germany, <laughs> and many of the speakers said Martin Luther, and others said John Calvin, and a case could be made for Luther, and a case could be made for Calvin, and when it came to me... I actually surprised everyone, but it was true to my heart. I said William Tyndale, because William Tyndale paid a price that Luther and Calvin never paid. He gave his life unto death as he died as a martyr to spread the Word of God, and he gave a gift that Calvin never gave. 
he gave a translation of the Bible in the language, the native language of his, of his own people. I, I, I love the story of, of William Tyndale. And in some ways, I'm like what John Piper has said, my best friends are dead men. <laughs> uh, because these are figures that just rise above the, the centuries and rise above um, generations. And their life impacts so greatly uh, those who learn of them. And I'm inspired. Uh, I'm motivated. It, it rallies my heart to rise to a higher level of commitment to Christ. It's like jogging with someone else. Uh, as they pick up their pace, you have to widen your stride and you pick up your pace to, to keep up with them. And men like William Tyndale challenge us. I think, to a deeper commitment to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So in this session, I want to talk about William Tyndale and the English Bible. Now, by way of introduction, let me tell you why he's such an extraordinary individual. It is three lines that intersect in the life and the epicenter of this man. Number one... He was the father of the English Bible. Um, some century and a half earlier, John Wycliffe, and I, and I will have a book on Wycliffe that will come out at the end of next month. But John Wycliffe first translated the Bible into English, but he did it from the Latin Vulgate. So it was a rather crude translation. William Tyndale was the first man to translate the Bible into the English language from the original Greek and from the original Hebrew and gave us a translation of the English Bible that was so pure and so precise and so accurate that when they translated the King James Version of the Bible and it was released in 1611, it was 85% verbatim what Tyndale had already done basically by himself in a backroom closet hiding from the government authorities. So he has given us an English Bible. And so the Bible that you brought to church today, uh, whatever the translation is, it rests on the shoulders of William Tyndale, who was the trailblazer and who first... Um, translated this book into English, and every translator since then, in one way or another, stands on his shoulders and, and really follows after him. So that's number one. He's the father of the English Bible. We could stop right there. Second, he's the father of the English, modern English language. With every line and every verse that William Tyndale translated, he was minting and coining the modern English language. There would not even be an English dictionary until 1703. So he was 150 years, almost 200 years ahead of his time. And with every line that he is translating, he is standardizing the English language the way words will be spelled. His own last name was spelled five or six different ways. And that's the way it was in the English language at that time, coming out of the modern English, uh, Middle English. And so he has given us the language with which we speak. 
and he is inventing words like Jehovah, Ark, um, Atonement. Those words did not even exist before William Tyndale. But there's probably almost a thousand words like that. So he's the father of the English Reformation. He is the father of the English, excuse me, the father of the English Bible, the father of the English language. And on top of that, he's the father of the English Reformation. There would not have been a Reformation in England if it had not been for William Tyndale, who set about on a course for his life that a plowboy in the field will know more of the Word of God than the Pope in Rome. He came to the realization that the nation of England was lost in spiritual darkness and would never come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ until there was an English Bible that could be put into the hands of the common man. And as he made the English Bible available, the English Reformation took off. And it would be his Bible that Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer and Thomas Cranmer and John Rogers and that panoply of luminaries in the English Reformation, they were all studying, reading, preaching, teaching from Tyndale's Bible. So he, he is a seminal figure in church history, and especially for those of us who speak the English language. J.H. Merrill Dubonnet has said that Tyndale was, quote, the mighty mainspring of the English Reformation, close quote. And Brian Edwards has said that Tyndale was, quote, the heart of the Reformation in England, close quote. And John Fox, who wrote Fox's book of martyrs, hailed Tyndale in his day as the apostle of England. So no higher um, praise could be given to Tyndale than what he has received. And even Martin Lloyd-Jones has said that Tyndale was the first Puritan. He was the first to begin from the inside to try to bring about change in the church. Well, let me set the scene, set the day for William Tyndale. We, we need to understand that England in the 16th century was shrouded with spiritual darkness. It, it would be unimaginable for us actually to turn back the time and to put ourselves into such a dark cave in which England was. Um, it was said that some 20,000 Catholic priests in England, and by the way, the Roman Catholic Church was the major landowner in all of England, owned more land than even the crown, uh, the king of England. Of those 20,000 Catholic priests, not a one could even translate a simple clause from the Lord's Prayer into the English language. Um, In 1401, uh, some hundred years before Tyndale would do his work, the English Parliament passed a national legislation called the Burning of Heretics, which legalized the burning of heretics, and to be a heretic was to possess a Bible in the English language or to 
teach your children from an English Bible. You would be burned at the stake. In 1408, the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, Thomas Aradell, wrote the Constitutions of Oxford. And I want you to listen to this because the Roman Catholic Church was doing everything they could as they worked arm in arm with the government to prevent the people from having a Bible in their own language. And so the Archbishop of Canterbury, and the Archbishop of Canterbury is the one who is directly under the king, and he's over every church in all of England. And he is responsible for the placing of men into pulpits. So he is really the power behind the throne. And the Archbishop writes, it is a dangerous thing to translate the text of the Holy Scripture out of one tongue into another. Now, let's just stop right there. The hypocrisy of that statement is staggering because the Roman Catholic Church is using a Latin Bible. Hello? (laughs) That is translated out of the the original language back in the fourth century. But he, he says it is a dangerous thing to translate the text of Holy Scripture out of one tongue or language into another For in the translation, the same sense is not always easily kept. We therefore decree and ordain that no man hereafter by his own authority may translate any text of the Scripture into English or any other tongue. No man can read any such book in part or in whole. So that gives us an idea of the lay of the land in the 16th century as as William Tyndale steps into the public spotlight, he was one man on one mission. He was a remarkable scholar. He was proficient in eight languages. He was proficient in Hebrew, Greek, Latin, Italian, Spanish, English, German, and French. And he spoke them so well that if he spoke in that tongue, and that was your language, you would assume that he grew up literally next door to you. But he could operate in all of these languages. He had an extraordinary uh, propensity for linguistics. And he would leave England at the age of 30 to embark upon his mission, going underground as a fugitive from Henry VIII in order to translate the Bible into the English language. So let's just walk through his life. I I just want you to know William Tyndale. As best we can tell, he was born in 1494. Um, He was born in Gloucestershire, which is in the western rural part of England, near the Wales or the Welsh border. And he was the product of a very industrious family. They were landowners. Uh, They were by that day well-to-do yeoman farmers, and they were successful. Uh, They were prosperous merchants, and they they had a financial standing that allowed them to send their son, William, to the finest university in all of England to send him to Oxford. 
And so William Tyndale, at age 12, and that was common back then, it would almost be like a a preparatory school before you would actually enter into the actual college. At age 12, he entered into Magdalen Hall, which is located inside of Magdalen College, which is attached to Oxford University. And there he would spend the next 10 years of his life in Oxford University in a highly competitive academic uh, environment, and he immediately began to show himself as having a brilliant mind. And one thing we need to understand about the Reformers is that they were brilliant men who were educated and trained in the greatest universities of their day. Uh, John Calvin was educated at the University of Paris when it was the greatest university in all of uh, Europe as well as the University of Bordeaux and the University of Orleans. He had a double degree, one in law and another in classical literature. Um, uh, Martin Luther not only was, had a doctorate in Bible from the University of Erfurt, but he was also on faculty for basically 30 years as a professor of Bible. Um, John Knox graduated from the University of St. Andrews when it was the leading educational institution in in all of Scotland, and we can just go down the list. These were brilliant men who were trained at the highest level in how to think and how to read and and how to organize their thoughts, and it was in this environment that that William Tyndale um, found himself. He received a Bachelor of Arts in 1512. But he would write later that Oxford did everything that they could to shield him from any knowledge of the Bible. And for the first seven to eight years, they intentionally kept the students ignorant of Scripture until their own worldly propaganda had brainwashed the students, and only then would they give them exposure to the Bible after they had had years of shaping these young minds." Tyndall writes, in the universities, they have ordained that no man shall look on the Scripture until he be nursed in heathen learning eight or nine years, and armed with false principles with which he is clean shut out of the understanding of Scripture. He said, the Scripture is locked up in our educational institutions, and in its place, false principles of natural philosophy rule the mind. So this is the environment in which, John, uh, in which William Tyndale was educated. He was a devoutly re- religious man and was a member of the Catholic Church and was ordained into the Catholic priesthood, though he never served. And that's another interesting feature is that all the Reformers started out inside the Catholic Church, until they came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. In 1515, he graduated with a Master of Arts degree from Oxford, and he was so absorbed in learning that after he received his second degree, he decided to stay just so he could study and learn more. And in 1519, um, Luther, uh, excuse me, Tyndale um, transferred to Cambridge which was the other leading university in England, um, was Oxford's foremost intellectual rival 
in that day. And there he met some other students who were reading Martin Luther's works. Now, Luther posted the 95 Theses, 1517. Luther would be converted to Christ, 1519. He immediately begins to write books, three of which in 1519 had a major impact on Europe. Those books came across the English Channel, and young college students at, at Cambridge began to read Luther's books, and they formed a small group Bible study. It became known as Little Germany. And as they read Luther's books, they, they met in a tavern or in an inn known as the White Horse Inn. And Tyndale was a part of that. In this one small group Bible study would come two archbishops, meaning presiding over every church in England. Seven became bishops, and nine became Protestant martyrs burned at the stake by Bloody Mary. This was an extraordinary group, and Tyndale, we believe, came to a saving knowledge of Christ in the, the midst of reading Luther, and the same may could be true of Calvin when he was in France. And in this Bible study was Nicholas Ridley, who was the greatest English theologian of the Reformation, Hugh Latimer, who was the leading and greatest English preacher during the Reformation, Miles Coverdale, who would complete Tyndale's translation of the Old Testament after he was martyred, Thomas Cranmer, uh, who became the archbishop and really the architect of the 39 articles of uh, the Church of England, this, this providence put all of these men at one time in Cambridge into this Bible study, and it was there that Tyndale came to know the Lord. His whole worldview was so turned upside down that he realized he needed to step out of Cambridge so he could devote his attention more exclusively to the Word of God. And so he left Cambridge and returned to near where he grew up and began to work on the estate of a very wealthy man, Sir John Walsh. And there he became the private chaplain for his family and the personal secretary for this, this uh, large landowner, as well as the tutor for his children. And as Tyndale began to read the Bible, he came to a clear, clear, even sharper understanding of sola fide, justification by faith alone, the purity of the gospel of, of Jesus Christ, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is the only gospel that there is. And he began to venture out into little small hamlets and began to, to preach and develop a little bit of a, of a reputation. And at that time, that was a rather dangerous thing. Sir John Walsh would occasionally have guests that would come eat in their, at their estate, and Tyndale would often be a part of those dinners. And in one particular night, uh, there was a Catholic priest who came and ate with the family, and they engaged in an argument over the Bible. And Tyndale had no reverse gear. He, he was always <laughs> moving forward, 
in any argumentation for sola scriptura. And this Catholic priest said, we would be better with the law of the Pope than with the law of Scripture. Tyndale was enraged. And that is when he made his famous statement, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spare my life ere many years, I will cause a plowboy in the field to know more of the Scripture than does the Pope in Rome. And with that, that became the mission statement for William Tyndale. That was the compass that was pointing north for his life. He would produce what had never been produced before. He would produce a Bible in the English language accurately translated from the original languages. So Tyndale was a man on a mission. He went to London because he knew he had to have the permission of the church and the permission of the government to translate the Bible into English. And so he went to the Bishop of London who presided over all the churches in, in London, and he believed that he would be sympathetic. Uh, who, who could be against such a thing? Well, the bishop was very resistant because he knew what was going on in Germany that once the people had this book in their hand and they could read it in their own language and understand what it means, that they don't have to have someone else twist what it means and keep them ignorant, that once people have a Bible in their hand and they can read it and understand it, there is going to be an extraordinary change in culture and in society. And it led in Germany, it, almost, it really went too far, it led to the peasants' revolt. And so the Bishop of London was fearful that the same would happen in England. So he denied permission to Tyndale. Well, the average evangelical of today would have said, well, that's a closed door, must be God's will, I don't do this. Tyndale is a man who would not take no for an answer because he believed it was God's will for his life, and he saw the great need. And so he stayed in London for a year and preached in various places, and he came to the realization that there is no place in England where he could translate the Bible into English because it would mean the loss of his own life. And so he shared his vision with some men and one businessman in particular, a wealthy cloth merchant named Humphrey Monmouth, said, I will underwrite your mission if you will go and translate the Bible into the English language. And he said, I will introduce you to other businessmen, and we will be your supporters, and we will stand with you as you go. Praise God for businessmen, Christian businessmen who undergird the work of God. So Tyndale, now having these men stand with him, was emboldened to leave England. Now here's what's amazing to me. He was not commissioned by a church. He was not commissioned by a denomination. No elders laid hands on him. There were no elders. He simply went and did it on his own.
He was a one-man SWAT team unleashed on the European continent. So in 1524, William Tyndale leaves England at age 30, never to return again, never to marry, to remain with singular fidelity towards this mission. Nothing would deter him. The only thing that would, would stop him would, would be ultimately his martyrdom. And so he sails across the English Channel, and he comes to Hamburg, Germany, 1524, and establishes a, a secretive base of operation just in someone's back room, and then travels to Wittenberg, Germany. He must meet Luther, who had been so instrumental in bringing him to faith in Christ, and there at the University of Wittenberg were like-minded reformers. There was Philip Melanchthon, who was the brilliant Greek exegete. Uh, there was Luther himself, and it was a community of, of highly intellectual but highly Bible-driven men on that little faculty, and there Tyndale begins to translate the New Testament into the English language. And it is believed that there he begins to be taught Hebrew. Virtually no one in, in, in Europe even knows Hebrew, the Hebrew language outside of little pockets of Jewish communities. At that time in England, there was not one single instructor in the Hebrew language in the entire nation of England. That's, that's how difficult this task was. And so after being there in Wittenberg, he then travels to Cologne, Germany, which was the most populated city in Germany. He went there because he believed, rightly so, that in the largest city it would be easiest for him to remain anonymous. And at this time, no one knows what his face looks like. And he can just blend in with the population. And there uh, in Cologne was the largest Roman uh, Catholic cathedral in all of Germany. He had one man who was his assistant who would uh, come alongside of him and just help him access different books and tools. And the challenge now was he would have to find a printer as he would translate the Bible into the English language, he would have to find someone who would take on the printing of this. And it was known uh, because Germany is under Catholic influence that it would cost the life of the printer if he undertook this project. Well, Tyndale was persuasive and he found a man who would print it, and he had some men in his print shop, and Tyndale begins in the Gospel of Matthew, and he translates it as far as Matthew 22, verse 13, and that night the men working in the print shop went to the local, local tavern, and there they had some spirits and became 
inebriated and began to talk out loud about the project they were working on. And people overheard this, and word was sent to um, one in the Catholic Church, and there was a raid on the print shop. Somehow Tyndale was, was tipped, was forewarned that this um, raid was coming, so he made a beeline straight to uh, the print shop, and he gathered up his work and fled out of a window in the middle of the night and had to think, where will I go? So he decided he would go to Worms, Germany. Does that sound familiar? It was just five years earlier that that is where um, Martin Luther stood at the Diet of Worms and said, my conscience is bound by the word of God. I can do no other. Here I stand. God help me. So he comes down the Rhine River, comes to Worms because he has heard that there are reform-minded people um, meeting in secret, and he goes there, he finds a printer, and he continues to translate the New Testament into English, and he completes the entire New Testament. It, It is a monumental achievement. And as he selects verms, there, there are five things that have to fall into place in order for this to be a successful operation. Num- number one, he would have to select a city on a river because there, there's no trucks, there's no trains, there's no airplanes. The only way to get the Bibles that would be produced would be to put them on a boat. And so that required that all of this take place in a city on a river, and Verms is that. But it would also have to be a river that could flow into the ocean because the goal was to get these Bibles to be smuggled into England and into Scotland on boats. And these Bibles would have to be printed on paper, so there would have to be a paper mill. Uh, and that would require forests from which to make the paper... Uh, enough that the first print run, there were 2,000 New Testament Bibles that were, uh, that were printed. And then on top of that, there had to be a printer who would risk his own neck to print it. And all of that came together by the providence of God. And there would also have to be, sixth, on this boat, cotton bales into which he can hide his New Testament. So the lines of providence just amazingly intersect under uh, Tyndale's leadership there in Verms, and it was successful. And so he printed the he had the Bible printed after he translated it, It was hid into bales, put onto ships, up the Rhine River, out into the ocean. And in England and in Scotland, he had sent word through various means. There were reform-minded, Luther-sympathetic merchants ready to receive these cotton bales and pull out the Bibles. And they were printed small so that they could easily be put into a coat 
or a woman could put them into a, a purse. And as soon as they were received, they immediately began to be sold in England and in Scotland. And it would really be the tip of the spear that would lead to the English Reformation. It, it was a daring, um, a, a daring mission. Well, soon in England, the Catholic Church discovered what was going on. And so their strategy was to buy up as many Bibles as they possibly could, little realizing that this was now funding Tyndale's next print run. <laughs> so the providence of God just continues to, to, to unfold. And so um, Tyndale, there on the, uh, the European uh, continent, he is staying in the back room of English merchants, meaning English businessmen who are conducting business uh, in Europe who were sympathetic to the cause of the Reformation. They would give him a, a back room in which he could work, and he would be huddled up there with uh, Luther's New Testament and uh, uh, a Greek New Testament that Erasmus had published in 1516, and a candlelight, and he is meticulously translating now um, not only the New Testament, and he will do a second uh, edition of the New Testament in which he will make 4,000 corrections just to sharpen and, and be more precise with verb tenses and, and the cadence of the sentence to be true to the original language. And so he moves his operation to Antwerp, to Antwerp, Belgium, Belgium today, because it was one of the main European centers of, of printing. And there he begins to write theological works. He's not just a Bible translator. He, he is a Bible defender. He is a Bible advocate. He is a Bible teacher. And he writes a book called The Parable of the Wicked Mammon, which um, it was a treatise on justification by faith alone in Christ alone. And in this uh, work, the parable of the wicked mammon, Tyndale writes this in defense of sola fide. It's a beautiful sentence, or beautiful two sentences. Listen to it. Christ is yours, and all his deeds are your deeds. Christ is in you, and you are in Him, knit together inseparably. Neither can you ever be damned except Christ be damned. Neither can Christ be saved except you be saved with Him. And by saved, he's referring to his ascension back to heaven. And because here's his reasoning, because you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, and you are in Christ, and Christ is in you, because He has ascended to the right hand of God the Father, you are forever anchored in heaven because of the merits of Christ. And His work on your behalf in His sinless life and substitutionary death now is imputed to you and credited to you. Christ is yours, and you are Christ. That is the very essence of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
that we do not merit heaven or acceptance with God based upon our own works or our own worthiness or our own deeds, but exclusively, exclusively because of the merit and deeds of another, the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. And because of our faith in Christ, we are inseparably now one with Christ, and what is true of Christ becomes true of us. Tyndale got it, the very purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He began to write other theological works while he is also translating the, beginning to translate the Old Testament as well as work on a revised edition of the New Testament. And one thing about these reformers, these men are so industrious. They, they do the work of 10 people. They do the work of, of 20 people. From sunrise to sunset and into the night, they, they pour their lives into the work of God. And this is Tyndale as he is so prolifically productive. In 1528, he writes a book, The Obedience of a Christian Man, in which he calls for obedience to the king of England. Uh, Henry VIII applauded this work, though he is still, Tyndale is still a fugitive and an outlaw of the king of England because he is undertaking this uh, project that merits the death penalty. And so, there began to be attempts by the English government to find Tyndale. And there would be a series of men who would be sent out from Henry VIII and sent out from the archbishop to go to Europe to hunt and to find and to bring back to England William Tyndale. So he was a marked man. So in 1528, the English Cardinal Thomas uh, Wolsey dispatched three agents to the continent of Europe. for a, It was a manhunt to find Tyndale because his Bibles are still circulating around in in England, but they couldn't find Tyndale. They returned empty-handed. And that same year, another serious attempt was made to try to track down Tyndale. And a Catholic friar, it was like a traveling evangelist for their church, was sent to Europe to try to find, seize, and bring this runaway reformer back to England, but Tyndale remained undercover due to the efforts of the English merchants who had come to believe in the one true saving gospel of Jesus Christ. They kept him safe and secure in their back rooms. In 1529, Tyndale began to translate the Hebrew Old Testament into English, something that has never been undertaken before, ever. And he translates Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's an amazing, amazing work. He began to sense 
that his whereabouts was being located. So he gathered up his work, and he boarded a ship in Antwerp and sailed on the open sea for the mouth of the Elbe River in Germany. And while he was on the open sea, a severe storm hit. And a strange providence, the ship went down. And all of his work was lost at sea. Again, the average evangelical today would have said, well, that's a closed door. Let's pray about something else to do. Tyndale, Tyndale was a one-track minded man. He believed in the mission because he believed in the power of the Word of God to save. And so he sails down the Elbe River after he's fished out of the ocean, and he goes to Hamburg, Germany, and there he is received into the house of another Reformed family, the von Emersons, who were sympathetic to the Reformation And there he is reunited with one of the men who were in the White Horse Inn, Miles Coverdale, who would eventually produce the Coverdale Bible, and together with Tyndale taking the, by far and away, the lead, um, Coverdale was not much of a scholar, Um, Tyndale retranslates Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It took him from March to December, nonstop. In 1529, and as he does so, and he's having to create new words, as some of which I've already mentioned, uh, Jehovah, Ark, Atonement, uh, Scapegoat, he realizes he needs to put a glossary of terms at the end of each book. And so at the end of Genesis, there is a glossary of words and where he defines the words that he is creating. And then there's a glossary after Exodus and and so forth. Those glossaries actually became the very first English dictionary. Uh, Short as they were, but necessary in order to understand the translation. They would be published in 1530, the first five books. But in 1529... The king's lord chancellor, Sir Thomas More, was commissioned by Henry VIII. You remember him. He's the man with all the wives. He's commissioned by Henry VIII and the Catholic Church to launch a character assassination on Tyndale. We can't find him, but we can destroy him publicly. And so they, 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 they launched this extraordinary smear campaign against Tyndale to try to undermine his reputation with those who were buying his Bible. And so Sir Thomas More, who was a very famous uh, figure at this time, wrote a book entitled A Dialogue Concerning Heresies. Well, this was all directed at Tyndale. And in this work, A Dialogue Concerning Heresies, More calls Tyndale the captain of English heretics. In other words, of all the heretics there are, you are the foremost false teacher in all of the world. He called Tyndale a hell hound 
in the kennel of the devil. He called him a new Judas. He called him worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. He called him an idolater and a devil worshiper. And he called him a beast out of whose brutish, beastly mouth comes filthy foam. So that Moore declared war on Tyndale. Tyndale was undeterred. You, you can say whatever you want to say. I mean, he took that as a badge of honor because they had assailed the prophets and they had assailed the Lord Jesus and they had assailed the, the, the apostles who were before him. And so rather than walk away, he moves forward. And in January of 1530, he has the first five books of Moses uh, printed in Antwerp. And then he answers Moore's attack with the practice of prelates, and he writes a scathing review of the Roman Catholic Church and all of the corruption, both theologically as well as immorally within the church. And he even went further and denounced the divorce of Henry VIII from Catherine of Aragon. He was kind of the John MacArthur of his day. Um, and so the king was so enraged that he demanded that the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V, and remember, he was there at the Diet of Worms and presided over the heresy trial of Martin Luther. He demands that, Henry VIII demands of Charles V that he arrest Tyndale and return him to his own hands in England for him to do with him what he would so desire. Well, Charles V couldn't find him. So Henry VIII devises another plan working with the church, Thomas Cromwell. He commissions a man named Stephen Vaughan, who was an English merchant, to travel to Europe, as it were, on business but with the intent to find Tyndale. And Vaughn was instructed by the king to offer Tyndale two things. Number one, a salary for the rest of his life. And number two, safe passage back to England if Tyndale will only walk away from the project. I will give you a salary for the rest of your life and you can return to your homeland and nothing will happen to you. That, that letter was delivered to Tyndale. Tyndale agreed on one condition, that the king would choose someone else to translate the Bible <laughs> into the English language. I mean, Tyndale's not just dogmatic, he's bulldogmatic, okay? This is going to happen one way or another. And so Vaughn brings the message back to Henry VIII, and this is what Vaughn said of Tyndale. I find Tyndale always singing one note. We can't get him off this subject to produce an English Bible from the original languages. So, um, other strategies were employed to try to uh, slander Tyndale. Uh, there, was, there were other works that were published against him, and uh, one of them by Moore <laughs> was in six volumes 
with nearly half a million words. The whole thing directed at Tyndale. And so we obviously realize, okay, Tyndale's onto something here very important. (laughs) If this is creating such a stir at the highest level of the government and of of the church back in England, it is reasonable to assume that Tyndale is doing exactly the right thing. Well, in 1534, he moved into a house in Antwerp of an English merchant. And again, praise God for these Christian businessmen that are working in partnership with Tyndale to get this project done. And the man's name was Thomas Points. He was a wealthy English merchant, and he gives Tyndale a place to carry out his work. He already had a chaplain. His name was John Rogers, who was a Catholic priest. And in the providence of God, while in that same house, Tyndale shares the purity of the gospel of Christ with John Rogers and John Rogers comes to a saving knowledge of Christ. Now, what you need to know about John Rogers is, number one, he would be the man who would actually complete Tyndale's translation work of the rest of the Old Testament after Tyndale is martyred. But number two, Rogers would become the first Marian martyr. He would be the first man burned at the stake by Bloody Mary, February the 4th, 1555. And he would be an extension of Tyndale after Tyndale has left. And many of you know, I carry a a picture in my preaching Bible of, of John Rogers to remind me of the price that must be paid for preaching the Word of God and how dangerous the, the preacher is in his preaching of the Word of God. And in the back of my preaching Bible, I have a, it's a wood carving of Rogers being strapped to the stake and being burned in front of his church to intimidate his church. Um, The lines of providence are so intersecting as Tyndale is, is moving forward. And so through Tyndale's witness, Rogers comes to a saving knowledge of Christ, and he would produce what would be the third Really, in, in many ways, the second English, Bi- the second English Bible, it, w- it would be the Matthews Bible. It would, be, it would be printed under an assumed name. Well, there in Points' house, Tyndale would complete the second edition of the New Testament with some 4,000 changes to the 1526 edition. Some claim it's as many as 5,000 edits, but it just shows how relentless, even obsessed, Tyndale was to produce the most accurate, the most precise translation of the, of the English Bible. And in the second edition, and it really became the first study Bible, he writes a short prologue or what we would call an introduction before each book of the New Testament with the exception of of two books. And then in the margin, the side margins, he would add, he added cross-references and then he also added explanatory notes 
to help the reader understand the proper interpretation of of what he was reading, and he also marked out literary units, which for us would be like paragraphs of thought in the Bible. Tyndale is doing the work of, of, of 20 men as he is spending all day, every day, to do everything that he can to produce the most accurate, the most helpful, the most instructful translation of the Bible into the English language. And if that was not enough, he then did a third edition where he wanted to do some more fine-tuning, and that was published at, at the end of 1534, the beginning of 1535. So Tyndale's translation uh, may be the greatest literary achievement in the English language, um, far more important than Shakespeare or Churchill or anyone else as he gave the English Bible a beautiful prose style that was plain, that was readable, that was straightforward, that more correctly translated words. For example, metanoia, which the Catholic Church and the Latin Vulgate said do repentance, excuse me, do penance, meaning you'd have to go give money or go to a confessional or whatever. Tyndall goes, no, that, that word means repent. He puts repentance into the language. Um, the Catholic Church, homilegao, said... In the, or as they translated it, it, would, it meant confess, but Tyndale says, no, that's not strong enough. It, it must be to acknowledge, meaning to take ownership for your sin, not just to v- say the words. And so David Daniel, who was really the foremost authority on Tyndale, recently passed away, was an Oxford English professor, has said that Tyndale could not possibly have been unaware that those words in particular undercut the entire sacrificial structure of the Roman Catholic Church and of a thousand years of teaching in the church throughout Europe, throughout North Africa, and throughout Asia Minor. Listen to the phrases that Tyndale wrestled with to put the cookies on the bottom shelf so that a, a, a plowboy in the field could actually understand what the Word of God was saying, yet it be accurate to the truth. It was Tyndale who coined phrases in interpreting the New Testament that really are a part of our everyday language, such as the twinkling of an eye, a moment in time. Seek and you will find. Let there be light. The powers that be, the salt of the earth, filthy lucre, it came to pass. He gave up the ghost. The signs of the times live and move and have our being. There is such a long list, and I've written a book called The Daring Mission of William Tyndale, and 
towards the back in one of the latter chapters, I give a more detailed uh, account of these phrases that we take for granted, but is for an for a translator is something of a Gordian knot that is just hard to 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 untie. Yet Tyndale succeeded, and they became staples of the English language, and it made a language for the English-speaking people, but it would be this same English Bible and language that would spread wherever there are English-speaking people. He continued to translate in the Old Testament, and he translated Joshua through Second Chronicles, and then he leapfrogged to the book of Jonah. Forty days and Nineveh will be destroyed because he believed that that was the message of the hour for London and for England, and he wanted preachers to go into the cities of England and preach 40 days and England will be destroyed. Forty days and Oxford and Cambridge and, and London will come under the judgment of God. He was a bold, straight-talking man with the voice of a prophet. Well, back in England, the attempts to find Tyndale continued as he was inflicting so much damage upon the English-speaking world. How would they find Tyndale? It has now been 10 years, an entire decade, and they have not found Tyndale. There was a man named Henry Phillips. He was the son of a wealthy merchant. The father gave to the son, Henry Phillips, a vast sum of money to take to London to deposit. Henry Phillips was a young fool, and along the way, he began to gamble, and he squandered his father's entire estate. He was in despair, and it was made known to the Catholic Church what had happened. And they called for Henry Phillips, and they made him an offer. If you will go to Europe and find Tyndale and have him executed, we will reach into the church's coffers, and we will restore the entire lost estate. Henry Phillips had no other option but to take this offer which was in reality a deal with the devil. And so in 1535, Henry Phillips left England and arrived in Antwerp. And he made several different contacts. And he was a smooth talker and networked and circulated until he was able to find some English merchants. He could recognize their language and their accent and followed the trail that led him to Tyndale. He befriended Tyndale. 
And the businessmen, who were far more street savvy, warned Tyndale. We don't feel good about this friendship you're making with Henry Phillips. And Tyndale was a bit naive, allowed himself to be drawn into this relationship. And so Henry Phillips set up a rendezvous in which he had government officials waiting around a corner. And he said to Tyndale, let's go for a walk. Let's talk. And so they headed out. They came to a narrow pass in the middle of the city between two buildings. And Philip said, you go first. And so Tyndale goes first. Phillips comes in behind and points over his head at the head of Tyndale. The government officials step out. They apprehend Tyndale. And they take him to the Vilvorde Castle, which is six miles north of Brussels in what is today Belgium. It was, an, it was a massive castle with an imposing moat around it, with three drawbridges, with seven towers, with impenetrable walls, and with an airtight prison inside of it. And there they deposited Tyndale, and there he stayed for the next 500 days. Shivering in the cold, damp dungeon, he was there for a year and a half, awaiting his trial and what would certainly be the death sentence and what would certainly be his execution. And so for that year and a half, exactly 500 days, Tyndale just continued to write and to translate. Nothing will stop Tyndale. He writes, I suffer greatly from cold in the head and am afflicted by a perpetual discharge, coughing and spitting up, which is much increased in this cell. My overcoat is worn out. My shirts are also worn out. And he writes a letter and makes this request. He requests a lamp. I request a lamp in the evening. It is indeed weary, wearisome sitting alone in the dark. But most of all, I beg and beseech you to permit me to have my Hebrew Bible, Hebrew grammar, and Hebrew dictionary that I may pass the time in that study. He's just rooted and grounded in the Word of God. He can't sit still. He has to be in the Word. And he writes more writings in defense of justification by faith alone. And in August of 1536, it was at last time for the trial of Tyndale. It was just a mockery. It was a kangaroo court. It was just going through the formal proceedings to make it look to be authentic, but the outcome had been determined long ago. And these were the charges that were brought against Tyndale. There were six charges brought against him for asserting that, number one, salvation is by justification, 
excuse me, justification is by faith alone. That was the first charge against him. For believing what you and I believe is the clear teaching of Scripture. Second, human traditions, now he's referring to the Catholic Church, human traditions cannot bind the conscience. Remember, Luther, my conscience is bound by the Word of God. I can do no other. Here I stand. Third, he was condemned for asserting that the human will is bound by sin. He was condemned because he believed in the bondage of the will, in sin. And Luther had already written his famous bondage of the will. Fourth, he was condemned because he believed there is no purgatory. Fifth, that neither Mary nor the saints offer prayers to Jesus on our behalf. And sixth, he had asserted that we are not to pray to Mary or to the saints, but to the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. So for these truths that are essential to our faith, he was found and charged guilty of heresy. The church could not put to death. The government must put to death, as it was in the trials of Jesus, and even as the Jews then turned Jesus over to the Romans, so now the church turns Tyndale over to the government officials to be executed. And so there was a very formal proceeding. He appeared before a large gathering wearing priestly robes. He was forced to kneel. A knife and broken glass were taken and his hands scraped until they bled. And it symbolized his loss of privileges of the priesthood. The cup and the wine of the mass were placed into his hands and immediately removed, indicating the anathema of God upon him. He was stripped of his priestly vestments with which he had been clothed for this procedure and at this point now delivered over to the civil authorities for the inevitable death sentence. On October the 6th, 1536, Tyndale was paraded to the southern gate of, of the castle where the execution stake awaited. The guards bound his feet to the bottom of a wooden cross as the chain was fastened around his neck and pulling him up tightly to the beam, the cross beam of the wood. The wood was placed around Tyndale to encase him in combustible burning wood. Gunpowder was then sprinkled thoroughly on the brush and the wood that was around him and a chain, metal chain, was secured around his neck. The executioner stood behind this cross beam awaiting the signal from the general to carry out the death sentence. And it was at this moment that Tyndale gazed up into the heavens and offered this now famous prayer, Lord, open the eyes of the King of England. Tyndale was then first hung by the neck, strangled, 
Then a lighted wax torch was handed to the executioner who threw it onto the straw and the brush wood. And the blazing fire now uh, surrounded his strangled body. And then the gunpowder exploded and his body was shattered into so many pieces there was nothing left to bury. And so William Tyndale came to um, a, a painful end of his life, but it was worth every sacrifice that he made. It was, the worth, it was worth the giving of his life because as a result of his work, you and I have an English translation that we can read. It was in that same year, 1536, and by the way, this is interesting, it's the same year that John Calvin went to Geneva. God has one man step off the scene, next man up. God always has the next reformer and the next man to carry the torch for the next decades. But in that same year, 1536, unknown to Tyndale, Miles Coverdale who had been a part of the White Horse Inn, took the Old Testament, Genesis through 2 Chronicles, Jonah, and the New Testament, and in a rather unscholarly, crude way, attempted to translate and piece together a translation of the other remaining books of the Old Testament, and that was published in 1535. It had already been published unknown to Tyndale while he was in prison. But John Rogers, who was a scholar of scholars and far more uh, intelligent in handling of languages, he came back through and edited Coverdale's work to raise it to a level that was uh, at the same point or close to with the work that Tyndale had done, and in 1537, the next year, produced the Matthews Bible. In the strange providence of God, in 1538, the King of England issued a decree that there should be an English Bible chained to every pulpit in England. And it was known as the Great Bible because it was so large, it was like a a pulpit Bible. And it would be chained to the pulpit so that every preacher who stepped into a pulpit, there would be a Bible right there in front of him and no one could take it away. It would be then in 1611 that the King James Version was printed and anywhere from 75 to 85% of The King James Version was just simply Tyndale's work and translation. Um, He was far ahead of his time, and he produced an English Bible so reliable and so accurate that even the committees that did the King James Version could not improve upon his work at all. We need heroes, the right heroes. I preached a couple years ago at Southern Seminary, and Dr. Al Mohler, I asked him, what do you want me to preach on? He said, I want you to preach on heroes. I said, heroes? You'll have to explain. And he said, my students have the wrong heroes. 
they're listening to certain podcasts and they're reading certain popular books. They need the right heroes to be in front of them. I think the same could be said for you and me, that we need the right heroes in front of us. And that's one of the values of, I think, reading and studying the Old Testament. There are heroic figures, both men and women, who are worthy of our emulation. It's really what discipleship is. You have someone out in front of you who's further along in their spiritual life And they are following Christ, and you are following them as they follow Christ. That's what discipleship is. That's what mentorship is. And that's what Hebrews 11 is, God's hall of fame. But by faith, Enoch, by faith, Noah, by faith, Abraham, by faith, Sarah, by faith, Moses, etc., etc. They are set before us as true heroes of the faith, not only to instruct us, but to inspire us. Well, I need heroes, and you need heroes, and I want you to know that one bright, shining star on a dark night is William Tyndale, and you need to know about the commitment of his life, and he challenges my life to go the second mile, the third mile, to double down in my pursuit of holiness and in my pursuit of Christ-likeness and in my ministry, that no sacrifice is too great for any one of us, be it the will of God. Let us be equally determined, as William Tyndale was, to run the race, to finish the course, to keep the faith, and to receive the treasure that is laid up for him in heaven. May you finish strong in your Christian life. May you widen your stride. May you press to the finish line. May you, may you end strong. And may you commit yourself to something that is far greater than you are, something that will outlive you, and that is ministry in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, may the Lord bless you. May the Lord strengthen you. May the Lord nail your feet to the floor. May the Lord embolden you. And may you be absorbed with the Word of God that has come down to us on a sea of blood. As this Bible is put into our hands, it's literally a a blood-stained book. Let us treasure it, let us value it, let us read it and learn it and study it, let us meditate upon it, let us teach it to others, and let us follow it as it will lead us all the way to glory. I'm going to close in a word of prayer. Thank you so much for coming, and I'm glad to say I have no idea what time it is, so I... It's just a dream come true for a preacher, so I have no idea what time it is, and I am only just now seeing there is a clock right here, and my wife says to me, she says, you're just not a good looker, and I said, well, you had a choice for a husband. Either he would be a good looker or he would be good looking, okay? (laughs) So I said, you you, you chose wisely. (laughs) So I can't even see the clock that's right here 
in front of me. So let me close in a word of prayer. Father, what a, what a life. What a life we just walked through with William Tyndale. What a course you laid out for him. Lord, we want to be faithful in what you've called us to do. Wherever you have planted us, wherever you have positioned us, we've got to be all in. Um, We've got to be fully committed and deeply resolved to carry out the mission of spreading the Word of God to the four corners of the earth. So, Lord, use this brief biographical sketch to embolden us, give us a spiritual backbone, uh, pour concrete into our faith and into our soul so that we can stand strong in these days. Father, we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.